Roxy Soxy. Good morning, Tam Tam. Well, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I mean, okay, can I just tell you something so funny? I had the worst insomnia last night going on like day five. So at 3 a.m., I started scrolling through Insta stories and, and looking, like, where is this biatch? I know. And then I was like, oh, shit. I'm like, that's right. Tannen is in Montana. Middle yeah. of nowhere. I'm not even in, Mo- I mean, I'm in, I'm in Montana, but I'm not even in like a city that like people would really know. I'm like an uh-huh. hour and a half away from Missoula in Montana. So like, I mean, the closest thing we have is like a little, sur- like a store, like this little store and like a brewery. <laughs> With, with like two people in it. Um, it. And it's, you know what? It's been so nice to just kind of breathe again and have that feeling of like small town sort of America. It's been, I, you know, I realize that Los Angeles is so fast paced all the time and so stressful. And I feel like people get really aggressive because like they're always trying to get to the next place. So it's been really nice to just breathe and enjoy enjoy like life a little bit. Oh my God. I want to see like full blown prairie outfits coming out of you. I want you to become like a mountain woman. I know Sean's hair is like up to here now. Let's see it. Let's see it, girl. It's funny because I went to get my hair done and like I was carrying my like Louis Vuitton bag and my Louis Vuitton purse and I have my Chanel sunglasses on. Not saying that no one wants to wear that out here, but it's just like it's not the thing to do because it's snowing outside and everyone's in like really great jackets and really great snow boots. And then there's me with like my Reeboks on going like my feet are cold and my my nice little sweater from James Purse, which is not keeping me warm. You're basically like the L.A. girl transplanted into Montana. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Not to mention, not to mention it is so damn cheap up there, isn't it? Compared to LA. I got my hair done and it was like $19, like $19.50, which was amazing. I was like, I can do my hair every single day. And my latte, which was pretty good, an oat milk latte, decaf, they totally got my order right, um, was $2.50. I'm kind of thinking that it would be cheaper for me to fly there to get my hair done rather than paying what I pay here in LA. (laughs) It would. It would. So um, I expect to see you next week. Okay. Okay. That would be amazing. I would love it. I was actually worried that I was like, first thing, we're not going to have any reception up here we're not gonna have any wi-fi we're not gonna like have a guest and i'm we're so blessed that we actually got today who we got on because i thought this would be a week of just you and i chatting oh no the poor listeners out there it just would be you and i on our lonesome um and one of my favorite people in the world so can you introduce this incredible man yes. oh my god no i am thrilled that we have him and i wish that i had known about him when i was pregnant because this yes. man is like the baby whispering guru he takes care of women all throughout their pregnancy prenatal postnatal and uh, i mean he is he's got apparently i hear magic hands because and he's really funny as well see that's what makes it makes you laugh through the pain yes exactly he's a prenatal chiropractor he is a doula he is like the all-around baby whisperer he knows exactly what he's doing today we have dr elliot berlin whoa thank you so much welcome you know what with that introduction i can't wait to hear myself <laughs> Thank you. And Rocky you're actually Sox. in for sure. everyone who's listening. Um, we're doing a Zoom and you've got space in the background. Yeah, so okay. it must be really nice. And it's probably even more relaxed than Montana Hot Springs. <laughs> well, this is the only way I can get a little space in Los Angeles. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming. Um, oh. I met you 
like my baby's now two and my baby was obviously breech and um, you tried to turn my second one and I wasn't very nice. I think I like, I, th- I think I was like, I think I'm going to pass. What did I say when you were trying to turn the baby? I was like, I think I'm going to pass out. No, stop. And you actually weren't pressing that hard. So I think I'm just, it was just a little bit of a wuss. <laughs> well, there's a lot of emotional stuff in there too. Before we get to that, I would say Roxy Socks. Is that your name? It's not too... Um, <laughs> It's not never too late. You could always uh, have another baby and I'll be there for you. That's true. I need to just tell my husband that. I'm like, I have Dr. Berlin on the on the ready for me, okay? Yeah. I and keep just, asking her to, and she um, keeps uh, trying to trap her husband into having a second baby. <laughs> I know. He's on oh. to me. He knows my I got my trapped <gasps> hardcore. I wanted to have two babies, uh-huh. and then we had two, and it was great. And I came home, and my wife made dinner. She's like, "Well, I made something new for dinner," and the kids were sleeping. And uh, you know, she sat down. And she's like, "You know, I've been thinking." I'm like, "Oh my god, no, that can't be good." If we're gonna have another baby now, seems like the greatest time ever to do it. And I was like heartbroken because I love her and I want to give her everything mm-hmm. under the world that she wants. But I would just felt so stretched thin with the two kids we already had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, you know, there's not even time. Like, I want to spend time with you. And I don't have that. And I want to spend time with me and I don't have that and each of the kids. And I love you so much. I just don't think I can do it. Certainly not right now. And she's like, okay, which was like the easiest she's ever let me off the hook. That right. was on Tuesday night. And then I came home on Thursday night <laughs> and she brought it up again in a totally different outfit. And then we had another baby. Um, well, did we, you have, and then I can just picture you having like this really sad sex, like just crying the whole time, being like, I don't want to have a baby. And she's like, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. And you're like, I can't do this. Yeah. Then I gave up. So we have a fourth. Day. She must have had some outfit on, some outfit on, you know, right? Could, I'll find out who it is. You could get a sponsor. Yeah, I do want a third. And um, I was driving up to Montana. And every time I broach the subject, my husband gets really sleepy, so, which is not good when he's driving a car. Um, but it's like I've noticed in my relationship when there's things that he's not into, he just starts yawning. It's like, what? And so I'll be like, hey, I think we should have a third kid. And he'll be like, yeah, you know, um, oh gosh, I think I should stop for like a diet because <laughs> I'm getting tired. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe it really has to be marginally awake, really. Yeah, really. <laughs> right. Doesn't take much, right? Especially since everything's so cheap in Montana. My haircut is only 12 bucks in LA, so I can't imagine. $12 in LA? Well, there's not that much. It takes a minute and a half. Oh my God. I think in Montana it would be like five bucks for the haircut and the, the latte. Where did you get oat milk up there? Oh, well, firstly, I'm the kind of girl that you don't want to marry because I bring my oat milk with me. Oh, oh, nice. <laughs> but they did have it. But I do know how I like things. And if I know what's going to be wrong, I'll make sure that I do everything I can for it not to be. <laughs> so I bring it in a little like sippy cup so that they have the milk if they need it. Hmm. Do you bring it when you fly and lie to them? Hey, it's breast milk. I got to bring it in. Oh, there you go. That's how you could get mm-hmm. it on board. Say it's breast milk. Hack, well, future flying let's, talk, let's talk about <laughs> you and your career. Um, okay, so why did you decide to get in this profession? And what does your job mean to you? Because I know that when I was with you, it seemed like you really care about the woman and her story and... Um, and how she can 
make the right decisions when there's a lot of information that gets thrown at pregnant women. So why did you decide to do it and what does it mean to you? So sometimes there's a lot of information, but it's not the greatest information. And sometimes the information that she needs doesn't get before her until it's too late and she's already made a decision that she regrets. So in terms of that, my whole goal is it's called informed pregnancy and it's a platform where we try to compile information and disseminate information through various sources so that people can get information during their pregnancy or even before pregnancy and they can make informed choices and find support for the choices that they're making. I don't have really, you know, my own angle is is just informed choice. I don't care if somebody has the baby at home or at a hospital with a midwife or the doctor, vaginally, cesarean, medicated, unmedicated. There's so many great ways to have a baby in our country, safe and healthy ways to have a baby that it's nice for you to be able to know what the options are and to pick. But what I come across all the time is people didn't have the information that they needed, didn't make the choice they would have preferred, and then have regrets down the road. Or sometimes people who don't even realize that more choices exist, and um, because maybe even their doctor or their midwife isn't giving them the full complement of choices. So I try to create a different media, a YouTube series, a podcast, different uh, uh, documentaries and a stand-up comedy show all about this topic so that mm-hmm. we can really get to people in different ways and sort of give them the information they need. How it all started was when I was seven, and mm. uh, I saw this uh, CPR class happening. I just walked into the lobby of a building, and they were doing CPR. I was like, oh, my God, what are they doing to that poor woman with no arms and no legs? And they they, <laughs> they explained to me that, that like, you could use your, your lungs and, and your body to, like, act as their lungs and their heart to help keep them alive until they can get more advanced medical help. And that just blew my mind. I was like, what? I can use my body to help somebody else like that. It was incredible. So, I mean, over the next few years, I eventually took CPR first aid, responding to emergencies, lifeguarding. I started teaching for the Red Cross. I just worked my way up when I was 17. I took the EMT class when I was 18. I started working in ambulances and emergency rooms. Mm. When I was 19, I started pre-med, but that's also the same year my father suddenly died from a uh, partially from a medical mix-up. And it really made me take a step back from drugs and surgery aspect of medicine and mm. kind of explore other forms of healthcare that work more with the body instead of against the body. I took a little time to make pizza. And during that year, I was, uh, <laughs> I was uh, exploring the uh, options and I fell in love with chiropractic and massage together. Like one was good. The other one was good. But together, it was almost like the peanut butter and chocolate of holistic healthcare. And so I went to school separately for both of them. And I, with the intention of smushing them together, it wasn't until my wife and I started to, uh, you know, decide we should have a baby. And uh, we followed the instructions um, and no baby came out. And then we ended up doing like three years of uh, medical fertility treatments. And at the end of it, they basically said, you should look at adopting because you're never going to have a baby together. And um, at that time, we were still pretty young. We were very broke and uh, our relationship had suffered through the process and we we're just not in a good place. So we took some time to work on improving our health, our relationship um, and our finances. And once we were kind of ready to start talking about alternative forms to uh, parenthood, we found out we were pregnant. And then like, you know, every two years we found out we were pregnant again. We couldn't shut it off. <laughs> it was, like, it was the outfit. That yeah, outfit exactly. comes out that, every two years. Outfit, seriously. <laughs> Actually, you know, our kids are born nine months. They're all born pretty much the same week, uh, June 1st, June 7th, June 10th, and April 30th. And I figured out it's nine months after Rosh Hashanah. 
And I knew, <laughs> without a doubt, it must be the Apple Teeny. Yeah. Uh, so we stopped having the Apple Teeny. Well, I need an Apple Teeny out here in Montana, please, because yes. I want a fair baby. <laughs> I'm on board. That's the only way I get to hang out with you more. I know. <laughs> So Dr. Berlin, you are like known as this baby whisperer, Dr. Guru. Um, like I said in the intro, I wish I had like known about you when I was pregnant because I could have definitely used you. But um, why do you think that women trust you over maybe more traditional doctors? Hmm. Um, well, for one thing, when we came to Los Angeles, we started a mind-body clinic. My wife is a psychologist, and our, our goal was general wellness, but we kept an eye on boosting natural fertility, whatever natural fertility you have, trying to maximize it. And in the first year, we had a couple of babies come through the program, and then every year after that, it just snowballed, more and more babies. Uh, those women, once they got pregnant, wanted to stick with me uh, for their chiropractic care, but I didn't know that much about pregnancy. Um, we were just in the process of having our own baby and uh, the first time. And in chiropractic school, a lot of, in massage school, both really, a lot of it is what not to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. But there's very little of what you could do. And so when they wanted to come see me, I was not that comfortable with it. And I tried to look around and find, where can I send you? There must be places that just do pregnancy that specialize in pregnancy. It's so unique and different. I couldn't find those places. And so the best I could do is do some research, read some literature that came from people who did prenatal care before me, uh, reach out and consult with doctors who are doing prenatal care in other parts of the country, chiropractors. Um, and then I kind of got comfortable with it. I, I would go back to my clients and say, look, I don't have any great place to send you, um, but I do feel confident working on you. I think I won't hurt you. I just hope I can help you. And, you know, that's all they had. So a lot of them wanted to come. And the more and more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it, the more you see the same things over again. You can experiment a little bit and see what works and what doesn't work. And over time, just like anything else, the more expertise you have, the more experience you have, the better you get at things. And so now, you know, I've been doing this for about 20 years and I see, I don't know, 15 pregnant women a day. It's... um I've seen a lot. I, I am sure I haven't seen it all, but it sometimes feels like I have. <laughs> and um, I also attend birth, so I've seen a lot at, at birth. And even sometimes at birth, I'll see where something goes not quite as smoothly as it should and realize there there might have been a way to prevent that with body work leading up to the birth. And so I've really, I've really learned a lot, and I work closely with other birth professionals like doulas and midwives and obstetricians and, in fact, a bunch of my clients are pregnant doulas, midwives, and obstetricians. And and so they have a trust because they know me firsthand. And so when they recommend me to their clients and patients, then the patients already come in with a little bit of a trust. It's not just like, uh, you know, someone someone gave you a good thumbs up on Facebook. <laughs> you know, a little deeper than that. So when I gave birth to my first daughter, my second, I had forgiven myself Um from the guilt and shame that I had for my first, but I really wanted a home birth. Like I really thought that that was the answer for me. I went to, you know, I had a doula, we talked through the steps. Um, I even went to a birthing place where it's like, it, for people that don't know, it's like, it's kind of a, a nice little sort of room with a doula. It's like very, you can have your baby in a bathtub, all these things that I wanted my baby was 10 pounds. She was breached. I didn't know you. Um, her, but then we later found out that the cord was wrapped around her neck. So I ended up having a C-section 
but I really wanted a home birth. Um, in the situation like mine, how safe are home births? Like what, what is some, like, would my experience ended, would it have ended badly? Did I make the right decision to have a C-section? Um, what if I had all these things that I keep asking myself, what if I did push for that home birth? Like how safe are they when you have situations like mine that came up? Well, I'd never recommend uh, doing the cesarean at home. I think. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no but I didn't know I was going to have a cesarean. Are. I was going to try. I was going to try for the home birth. As long as you sterilize the knife under hot water, you should be good, right? Yeah. My husband can do anything. He's fine. He can do it. Did you use this for the butter? Okay. So, <clears throat> I mean, the thing about that in my mind makes home birth a safe option mm -hmm. is that you selectively choose your, your patients who are going to be doing home birth um, to a degree. And you have providers who are very well trained, medically trained, right? Typically in midwives, sometimes obstetricians that do home birth. But either way, they're very extensively trained on prenatal care labor and delivery, and even newborn care. Um, and so they're constantly looking during pregnancy, is this a typical low birth pregnancy in a relatively healthy woman, healthy baby, that all indicators are will go well at home, or is it not? And so almost always by 36 weeks, they do um, an ultrasound, they recommend having an ultrasound, and they're looking for things are like, how big is the baby? How big is your pelvis? How is the position of the baby? How is the cord? How is the fluid? And if anything doesn't look great, they always talk to you about it, and they generally recommend, hmm, you know what? There's a certain set of parameters that make home birth safe, and there's a certain set of parameters that make home birth less safe. And you might have some of these risk factors. We might recommend laboring at the hospital instead. And um, I can't imagine with a large breech baby with a nuchal cord, they wouldn't have figured that out. Mm. So you wouldn't labor at home with that. Oh, okay. So talking about, you know, birth stories, um, my birth story was something I really didn't plan for. Um, my daughter was breech and my gyno was really against delivering a breech baby. But I was so determined. I really, really wanted like a vaginal delivery for a number of reasons, but, you know, mostly because recovery is a lot smoother usually than like a C-section. So I went in and I had the inversion procedure in the hospital. She turned, um, the baby turned a quarter turn, but then ended up going right back to breech position. So I kind of look at it as like my first lesson in parenting because I can't control everything, you know, which I soon found out, you know, when she came out as well. Um, but what is your advice for women whose birth birth plans don't go according to plan? Mm -hmm. oh, that's a great question. It's a loaded mm -hmm. question. I, In my mind, a birth plan, and everybody has a different philosophy. This is just me and, and the opinions I've formed over time. And they also, by the way, come from a guy who never has to squeeze anything out of his pelvis. <laughs> so take it for what it's worth. But um, in my mind, a birth plan is, is a flow chart. Mm -hmm. And on page one of your flow chart is the most natural birth you can picture yourself wanting to have. So for some people, that's on their own, alone, with absolutely nobody around them, which is how some other animals do it. Um, no birth professionals, no other friends or doulas or midwives, sometimes not even a partner. They just want to go have their baby alone, free birth style. Um, for other people, it's, you know, out of a hospital, either at home or at a birth center with maybe a midwife or obstetrician around you or a doula. Um, and for some people, it's in the hospital and it's vaginal with medication or without. 
And for mm-hmm. some people, the most natural birth they can see themselves wanting to have is a planned cesarean. And it doesn't matter. It's your choice. And so whatever you choose there is page one mm-hmm. of your birth plan. But the idea is that it's a flow chart, right? Even though you're aiming for that, that's your first choice if all goes well. There's more pages that you would go to, like if you're breached, let's say, at the very beginning, mm-hmm. and you're not in a good breach delivery position, or you don't want to deliver a breech baby vaginally, your doctor doesn't do it, and there's nobody near you who does do it, um, any of those things, or if the baby's sitting on your cervix, placenta previa, or if you have mm-hmm. an active herpes lesion or other things that come up, like a funic presentation of the cord where the cord is like ingrained into the soft tissue by the head and the cord will probably uh, rupture if you try mm. to do a vaginal birth. These are things where most people agree that a cesarean birth is a better way to go. Or if not, maybe labor just starts and during labor you see decelerations of the baby's heart rate and there's, you know, it's a pattern that becomes questionable. Pink flag. If you have a pink flag, you know, in your home, most providers will not wait at home to see if that turns into a red flag. You transport to the hospital and continuing laboring there just to be safe. Um, if you're in the hospital and you wanted an unmedicated birth and it just becomes overwhelming or a lot of time goes by with no progress, maybe because your body's too tense and rigid, then having some pain relief might change everything for the better. You don't know. It's a flow chart. And the last page on every flow chart is a cesarean birth. That's part of the birth plan because if your labor goes into a certain way that it becomes clear that it's safer for you and or the baby to deliver by cesarean, that's mm-hmm. part of your plan. It's not page one, but it's part of your birth plan. If you follow your birth plan all the way through to that cesarean, you haven't failed. Your plan hasn't failed. You've actually followed your plan all the way to the end. If you only have a one-page birth plan, that is, you know, whatever it is, no cesarean. I see that birth plan a lot. Mm-hmm. Then if you have to have a cesarean, you kind of feel like a failure because mm-hmm. that wasn't your plan. If you rigidly have the plan, I'm giving birth at home, I, d- I will not be in a hospital or I will not get drugs. You know, if it goes the way you want it to, then you feel like a superhero. But if you don't, you feel like a super failure sometimes. And it's sad to me because anybody, anybody, anybody who grows a human baby inside your body and brings that baby into the world, into the universe, no matter how you bring them into the universe, you're a superhero. And then, you know, if you go on and choose to use your body to make food, the perfect food for that baby, mm-hmm. and feed and nurture that baby through the earliest stages and and sustain them that way, it's like mind-blowing what you do. You're like a superhero. Jim Gaffigan kind of says, you know, about men, if you think about our contribution to, uh, you know, the... You're there for the fun part. Yeah. Kind of embarrassing, <laughs> the two seconds really. of fun. Two minutes. The two magical two minutes. Two minutes. Two seconds. <laughs> two. Um, you know, what you're saying... I don't know, that's not true. Two. 25 minutes, Dr. Berlin, um, 35, an hour and a half. Um, what you're saying makes sense, but it just, uh, for the women that I've been around, the pregnant women that I've been around, the women who have ended up having C-sections or having pain um, medication when they wanted an unmedicated birth, they have undeniably felt like complete and utter failures. Mm-hmm. So, why do you think that our birth stories mean so much to us and they make up so much of who we are at the beginning stages of being a mother? Do you think it's all the pressure that we get as women about how we should 
birth our babies, how we should feed our babies, how connected we should be to them. I mean, I know that things are changing after I've had Lennon, my first daughter is seven. I know when I had Phoenix, it was all about the beautiful kumbaya, unmedicated birth, breastfeed until you're three years old. I mean, I could not breastfeed. I mean, I did everything I could, breastfed for three months, almost killed me mentally, but I kept fighting on because I did not want to fail my baby. And I just think there's so much pressure for women that even though what you're saying makes sense, I feel like we don't feel that way. Well, Tam Tam, if it makes you feel any better, um, I tried nursing my firstborn. Um, I had no success whatsoever. And you didn't take the pills? I, I didn't take the pills, but I was like, baby, where do we keep that nipple butter? But you don't shame uh, us. Men don't really shame the woman. Not really. I mean, I mean, I know my husband did, and I know a lot of husbands, most of my, well, all my friends' husbands didn't. It's other women. Yeah, and we shame ourselves, too. I don't even think it's other, it's other mothers mm-hmm. that really shame other mothers for their choices. So let me go down two different paths with you. Number one, I think that when you make a decision... Uh, for your baby, you have to feel like it's the right decision. And one way that you justify that it was the right decision is when other people make the same decision, right? And I think that's a survival instinct. And so if you breastfeed or you don't breastfeed or you have a vaginal birth or a cesarean birth, whatever it is, you need other people to make that same choice. Mm-hmm. It's just an animalistic thing. I think you need other people to make that same choice and to feel like that was the right choice too. Otherwise, it makes you question or guess the choice that you made yourself. And for that reason, I think that there's a lot of, you know, mom to mom pressure that my way was the right way of doing it. And you have to do it my way or you did it the wrong way. Or if you do it the other way, a different way, and it's great, then I all of a sudden start to feel like maybe I didn't make the right choice for my baby. I I think there's a, a pretty strong element of that. Couple that right now with the fact that everything, especially in the United States, is polarized. There's mm-hmm. there's not any middle ground. There's this way and that way and everything else. Is, there's no in-between. So, like, if you want to hold off, for example, just giving your MMR to your kid for three months, that means you don't fully believe in the vaccine program. You are labeled anti-vaxxer. Right. And there is only pro vaxxer and anti vaxxer. There's nothing in between, which is really dumb because everybody can be presented with a scenario where you might say, let me hold off on that vaccine for six months or a year. That makes sense to me. But you're not allowed to have a middle ground anymore. So all that judginess that naturally comes, I think, from wanting other people to make the same choices that you make um, or for you to make the same choices that they made is magnified right now by the binary choices that everybody has to make. There's only Mm -hmm. my way or the other way. You're on my team or you're against me. And And it's really hard to watch because it sets you up for some really bad feelings postpartum. And I go back to, again, as somebody who just watches people do this, just watch you grow a baby with your body, bring a baby into the world with your body, feed a baby with your body. Um, And then even everything that comes out of after that, sacrificing your sleep and sacrificing, you know, your own physical health sometimes and mental health sometimes to give everything you have to this child, it is mind-blowing what you do. And part of the reason I love, I work sometimes 15 hours a day and it's hard physical work for me, but sometimes I, I just, it goes so fast because I'm surrounded by people who inspire the heck out of me. And that's the whole thing. You know, I think that 
that if you, well, the other piece of the puzzle, let's just go back for a tiny bit, which is that if you have a choice to make and you make your choice and then you find out there are other options later, Mm -hmm. then I think it, it sets you up for also feeling really bad, which is why sometimes, um, really work hard. And sometimes I get into hot water with obstetricians that I work with. They'll send me somebody and say, Hey, try to do the natural things to get this baby to turn. And I see the baby's not turning, but I'll say, Hey, you know, there are a few doctors in town who deliver breech babies vaginally. You might be a good candidate for that. And then if they switch to that doctor, the original doctor gets really mad. And I'm like, wait a second. I would have thought that you yourself would tell your patient that these choices exist. It's not that Mm -hmm. you're not an amazing doctor. You just don't do breech birth vaginally, which is like a specialty. If you're going to a general physician and some kidney issue comes up, then you don't stay with your general physician for the kidney issue. You go to a specialist. And that's how I see breach and other things like that. I do see women sometimes feel really bad not knowing that they had choices, feeling like they they missed their birth plan and they missed the mark on their birth plan and then found out that there was things that they could have done to hit the mark on their birth plan. But because they didn't know about them, they get really upset and really um, frustrated with themselves and frustrated with their providers. So I think there's a lot of post-birth letdown for that reason as well. There's another thing, which is that there's a massive flux of responsibility, a massive flux of hormone change after you have a baby. Mm -hmm. And we used to be surrounded. We used to be living on family properties in the village. And they would say it takes a village to raise a child. And you had all that support from all the other women in your family, from other people in the the village that were there. You were never alone. You didn't need a childbirth educator because it was built in. You didn't need a lactation consultant because it was built in. You didn't need a big, hairy, orthodox man-Jewish doula. (laughs) No, we do. We need him. Now we do. Uh Now we do because we we moved away from our families and we don't have all that support. And so you still you have this woman without her village trying to raise her child. It really puts you in a very, very physically and emotionally stressful place. You know, it's interesting you say that because I feel like one of the hardest times being a parent is that when you come home from the hospital, like that initial when you get home with the baby, um, you know, because let's face it, the hospital is sort of like a mini vacation in some ways, especially for like us who had C-sections, Tamman and I, because they're waiting on you. They're bringing you food. You know, there's medicine. You can send your baby to the nursery if you want. It's like there's a lot going on. So when you get home, it's like this awakening and you're like, oh, shit, like it's real. Like this is really happening, not to mention on top of that, you know, your hormones are raging. I, I was recovering from a C-section, as was Tamin. You know, my milk didn't come in right away because I think I had the C-section. So I was really frustrated with that, trying to take the Greek tablets and and all the things to get the milk going, you know? Remember that? Milk thistle bowl. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, Taking all those things. What is, that? what is that? Vitamins? The milky, milky something vitamins? There's so I don't many. know. There's so, so many. many. Sorry, I keep going around. No, no worries. Um, but yeah, it's like, so my hormones were all out of whack. I also had a, like a flu virus that I somehow caught like at the hospital in the middle of oh, July. Wow. Like, so I had fever and I had body aches and chills and I was trying to breastfeed. And so it was like all these things going on at the same time. And um, so it couldn't take any medicine. So I was just trying to wing it. You know, we're trying to figure it out. But what are some of your best tips for coping in that transitional time when all these factors are in play and you really don't know what the hell is going on? 
Yeah, you're not selling uh, a very well. People are like, I will use that condom tonight. Yeah. It wasn't like it used to be. Like, it didn't used to be like this, right, Dr. Berlin? Like, it just used to be easier. It used to be easier because you had, I think you had the village behind you. There was less judginess. You had more support. I can tell you some of the things that I think will be very helpful. But you touched on one thing, which is the the fenugreek. And uh, it reminds me, I used to do this. uh, We do, like, live stand-up comedy about having kids mm-hmm. it's a show we call it kidding and um we had sponsors <laughs> one of our sponsors made a lactation cookie oh, oh yes really? oh. i used to eat all those and all i was doing is gaining weight and not producing milk <laughs> oh this company i i went through my whole day at the office and we rushed to the theater to get the show ready we did the whole show and i realized i hadn't eaten all day and for some reason <laughs> instead of sending one one cookie per couple they sent three cookies per couple and so at the end we had a ton of cookies left (laughs) i just put them in a box and put them on the front seat of my car and then when i drove home i ate one and it was delicious it was really good (laughs) and then i just i was so hungry i I must have eaten like 15 lactation cookies Oh, by the time I got home, I was engorged. I was like, oh, my God. Were you really? Does it really do that or not? No, I didn't. Well, I was engorged, but only because I was so fat from (laughs) eating cookies. Uh, No no milk, no drip. Um, Yeah, so so good tips. Look, my wife is a psychologist. She probably should join you at some point and share, like, much better tips than I have. Um, but one tip I have is she has a workshop. It's called the Afterburn Birth, the Afterbirth Plan Workshop. Mm-hmm. She's been doing postnatal psychology, pre and postnatal, for about uh, 15 years now. And after doing it, you start to see that people struggle with the same things over and over again. Mm-hmm. Individual str- struggles physically, hormonally, emotionally, um, relationship struggles, because the relationship changes a lot after you have a baby. The whole dynamics of the relationship change. Um, and so after seeing the same things over and over again, she put together this workshop called the Afterbirth Plan, where so many people are so focused on how are we going to get this baby out of me and what baby gear do I need? But very little focus on what happens for the next 20 years after that. Mm-hmm. And so she really put together this powerful workshop that you do at your own pace online. And it goes through all the things that you can do to put in structure for your for yourself. What to expect is almost like the biggest piece, like because nobody knows what to expect. It's kind of a bumpy terrain over there. And if you're still driving your sedan, it's not going to be a comfortable ride. But if you're driving an off-road vehicle, it may be so enjoyable that you want to do it again at some point. So you have to be properly equipped for that transition, that post-baby transition. And that's what the afterbirth plan is all about. Um, things that I would say are to really talk through your your postpartum with your partner, if you have a partner, and kind of what the roles will be and sort of what kind of support can you put in place, especially today with so many different uh, services, delivery services and apps. Mm -hmm. You can have a lot of things. And and one of the things I see is after women have a baby, there's no more self-care. Like you, Mm -mm. you put yourself at the bottom of the totem pole. But again, today there's so many apps. There are people that will come to almost anything, uh, whether it's just, you know, blowing out your hair or a little massage or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I see that. Tam Tam. (laughs) Montana blowout. (laughs) I mean, I really felt like my second, that's kind of why I want to have a third because the second experience was so much more pleasurable for me. Um, and it's because I met you, Dr. Uh, Riley, and I, I got to like have so much fun. (laughs) But I had a C-section with both of them, but it just, 
was a complete, I almost want to cry thinking about how incredible the second time was because I stopped the bullshit guilt that I'd put on myself and the shame from the first baby. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to get a night nurse. I'm still going to breastfeed. I'm still going to breastfeed every two, three hours, but someone is going to bring me the baby to my bed and breastfeed. And then I can sleep instead of watch the baby sleep because I'm so worried about SIDS or something's going to happen to her. So I was sleeping right in the beginning, three hour increments, which was massive for me. The first one I was waking up every 45 minutes for for the first year. And then I started hallucinating because like I had not slept more than an hour at a time. Then I got someone to cook for me because as lovely as my husband is, he makes like fried eggs on toast. So I got someone to really nourish my body so I could nourish my child. I had someone massage me. Now I know this stuff, and then this is something that really gets me too, is expensive. So we had planned for that financially and the access to that, I believe we need to really talk about some of this should be covered by insurance. We Mm, should have help. Like women, these children are the next generation of our society and the women can't break down so that they can't raise the proper children to go out into the world. Like we have to have some kind of help for people that can't. We need, you know, in Australia, they not only do you get like, months and months and months and months off. The father does too. But also someone comes over and helps you like breastfeed. Like I didn't know how to breastfeed. You know, the 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 the, the hospital here squishes your breast and goes like, you know, put it like a pancake, hit it in its mouth and like good luck with you. Good luck with it. And that's not how you learn how to really develop this like give and take back and forth with breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And we need to have, you know, programs in place for women who give birth so that they can learn these things and feel less alone. But my second, I paid for it, but it was a whole different experience. Yeah. I'm really glad you had that second experience though. And uh, I can see why you want a third one. It kind of makes sense why so many Americans love pancakes now too. (laughs) A little breast milk syrup. Yeah. I couldn't like get the boob in my kid's mouth. And my friend, this is when you know, as a true friend, she came over, she squished my boob so hard. I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe like we're really close now and kept whacking. Cause you're supposed to like whack the whole nipple in the baby's mouth. Cause people don't, know and they like suck the like the tiny bit on the top yeah. and so like the breast milk doesn't go doesn't flow properly so she's like whacking my boob in the baby's mouth but at some point the baby latched and and Lennon was drinking milk so it was a much easier experience but thank god for that friend I'm totally traumatized (laughs) well I think too I think too that's why people get traumatized and that's why postpartum depression is so rampant right because it's so common like as you were saying, we neglect ourselves. We don't do self-care. We neglect our mental health, which that probably that time is one of the most important times to pay attention to our mental health. Um, and then, you know, there's, of course, there's Western medicine and, you know, a lot of prescriptions. But what do you think, like, especially for treating postpartum depression, do you recommend, like, going the Western medicine route? Or are you more, like, holistic sort of Eastern traditions and things like that. What would you say? You know, there's a there's a huge spectrum of postpartum um, mental health issues. Some of them are very um, mild and to be expected, more like baby blues, where you mm-hmm. feel sad, where you cry. I remember, um, you know, this will date how old we are. I remember my wife would go check her mail and the voice would say, you've got mail. And she would just be all weepy. <laughs> 
Mel, you know, um, uh, should watch stuff on TV and just, you know, be very emotional at, at these scripted television shows. Um, and then it can get a lot more significant than that. It, there can be a lot of anxiety. There can be depression. Um, and some of it is stuff you can deal with at home. And some of it actually is stuff that you need to uh, probably treat medically or sometimes even inpatient. Um, and uh, it's such a big range. So mm-hmm. part of it, I think, is to really try to spend time before the baby comes learning what what happens after a baby emotionally and psychologically and what's normal, what's baby blues. And if there's a couple, so for both partners to really do this, and if it's a, a single mom, then for somebody else in her life to do it with her as well. So they can be aware and they can be kind of saying that, you know, that's a baby blues thing. Here's how we can deal with that. Or you seem to be beyond that or to, and there's also a lot of great resources now, very affordable resources, even online where you can, you know, zoom into a psychologist or even a psychiatrist and kind of get evaluated and see, but the earlier you deal with those things, the better the outcomes are always. And sometimes the right answer is medication. And sometimes the right answer is more than medication, but um, you won't know. I think that if you spend a little time preparing for it ahead of time, then you'll be in a much better position to deal with it should it happen afterwards. And it's not just a depression. You know, there's a whole gamut. They changed it. They call it PMAD now, mm-hmm. perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot. There's a lot on that spectrum. I do think that support is very important, and it doesn't have to be super expensive. So mm-hmm. we used to do this uh, once-a-year festival it was a breastfeeding awareness family festival where we'd try to get everybody to come down, people who were interested in breastfeeding, um, and to set them up for success. So we'd have this big lactation lounge where we had lactation educators and instructors to work with them. And, um, you know, anybody can get in there. There was a ticket price, but if people struggled, we would let them in absolutely free, uh, just because getting the information out was the most important thing to mm-hmm. us. But one of the biggest things that we did there is uh, we had a peer support program. So uh, we would have people who were successfully breastfeeding volunteer to help out other people who were about to have babies and wanted to be successfully breastfeeding, and we would match them up. And so once these ladies gave birth, they would have peer support from somebody who they didn't necessarily know, but they were felt supported by, and somebody who had already success with it, mm-hmm. to just give them some coaching and guidance and tips and be there for them, no cost whatsoever. Of course, sometimes it moves on to a lactation educator or an, a lactation consultant, but but just having different types of support like that, which don't have to be expensive, I find is very, very helpful. Again, it's mm-hmm. trying to recreate the village that would have been there if we still lived in the village and we still had all that support from our family and friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really think that the main things are like that sleep, that sleep deprivation, the mm-hmm. nourish, like the nutrition and community for sure. Um, so, when I saw you, I think I told you this, but I had suffered many miscarriages um, between Phoenix and Lennon. And Phoenix was such an easy, it was like, you know, I looked at my husband and we got pregnant. And that just wasn't the case from then on out. And I wasn't that much older. I, I got pregnant with Phoenix in my 20s. Um, and as I hit my 30s, I was having issues. So one in four women have a miscarriage, which is a high statistic. Why do you think so many women are not being able to carry a child full term? 
um, is it just because we're all starting later or has it always been the case? And let me, tell me how you feel about that. I thought you were still in your twenties. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So there's I'm only 30 and a half. Oh, good. Still? Um, (laughs) You know, I don't know the statistics, to be honest, but I will say this. Having miscarriage is a normal part of uh, reproduction. And so a lot has to go right. A lot has to go right in the female system. A lot has to go right in the male system. A lot has to go right in the compatibility system. So sometimes people struggle to get pregnant, and sometimes they struggle for three to five months, and they feel like, oh, my goodness, this is a horrible fertility struggle. That's actually kind of within the realm of normal. Normal. Uh, oftentimes, a conception will take place, and your body has to do the job of figuring out if this conception is compatible with life or not, or if your body's in a place where it's able to sustain a pregnancy right now or not. And if the answer to either of those two questions is no, then your body will reject the pregnancy. Um, oftentimes, rightfully so. So, for example, um, if two people, let's say you have two kids who are eight years old, and they both had something, they consumed something that had poison in it, and one of them is smiling and happy and totally normal color tone, and the other one's green and nauseous and throwing up, which one's healthier? The green one. Yeah, the green of one course. Is recognized. Yeah, the green <laughs> one is recognized that there's something that doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. And we'll get rid of it. And that's a, a natural part of what your body does in pregnancy as well. It analyzes the pregnancy. And if it's not a strong, healthy pregnancy, it's not going to be compatible with life. It, it rejects that pregnancy and waits for another one to come by. That's healthier. Now, obviously, there are things that cause fertility problems that are bigger than this. You know, sometimes people have endometriosis or sometimes uh, people have uh, like a septum in their uterus that doesn't really have good blood flow and the embryos are attaching themselves to that septum and there's nothing to nourish them so they don't thrive. Um, There's hormonal considerations. There's a lot that can be going on that maybe needs to be addressed medically. But a significant portion of miscarriage, early miscarriage, you know, in the first 10 weeks, is just typical body trying to figure it out. And now that we have pregnancy tests, like you could literally just still be out of breath from having sex and do a pregnancy test. <laughs> oh, that's um, me. <laughs> I've put them in business. I'm like, I'm going to pee on three just in case. Just in case yeah. the third one says I am. And then make uh, the other two said I'm not. Uh, Tammy gets your pregnancy test at Costco. Hi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Guys in bulk. Guys in bulk. I just kept them in business, I swear. Uh, so because you could find out so much earlier, you sometimes mm. find out that you're pregnant, you know, long before anybody would have 30 or 40 years ago. And then you see that pregnancy thrive for three, four or five weeks and then it disappears. Um, I, women previously wouldn't have even known they were pregnant. And so we're much more, we have much closer observation of what's going on. We find out we're pregnant more frequently. And so we see the miscarriages more frequently. But I think a lot of it's just typical part of what the body does in its natural process of, you know, creating a healthy human. Um, mm-hmm. Some of it is almost definitely age related. So, you know, peak pregnancy time is probably in, in the late 20s, somewhere around there. Um, and then as you get uh, middle 20s, even as you get older and older. So, your body gets a little bit and your eggs get older. Um, you know, you're born with all the eggs you're going to have. And so, you know, the things, the ability to find that strong egg that's going to make a healthy human becomes a bit more challenging. So probably the rate goes up because of that. Um, stress, I think, probably pays plays a big role when people are very stressed out and the body feels like uh, 
you're being chased by a tiger, even though you're not being chased by a tiger, the operation mode of your automatic nervous system, the one that just does things in response to stimuli around you, like if you are being chased by a tiger, very predictable things will happen. Your pupils will dilate so you can see the whole battlefield. Your blood will rush from your posture into your arms and legs. Your body will break down glycogen and fuel your muscles with extra amounts of sugar. All these different things happen. What happens also is that your digestive system and reproductive system become not emergency. They're not part of the emergency plan. And so they get no attention at all. Your body's like, this is not a great time to have a donut and this is not a great time to have a baby. So at the very least, your body's not really concerned about th- sustaining a pregnancy. Um, or it might say, we, we don't have the resources for this. We're in emergency mode and li- literally try to sabotage your pregnancy. Um, a lot of us just deal with regular stress on a daily basis. And until we're able to convince our bodies that we're not in an emergency situation, it can be hard to sustain a pregnancy. That's why I think you sometimes see people and then the process makes it even worse because you start to do IVF and things like that. And it just becomes much, much more heavy and intense and stressful by nature. And so I think you see people give up and start to look at adoption. Then all of a sudden they go to Hawaii and get pregnant. Um, it's because they turned off that stress element in relation to the pregnancy. And Roxy got pregnant on tequila, didn't you? I did. I did. Tequila is my best friend. Because <laughs> 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 yeah. what you just said about stress, we had all these miscarriages and the doctor literally said, do not try for another baby. You have to make sure that your body is like building up again. Like we do not try for another baby. We had sex like on my period and then we used like protection. And I swear to God, I have no idea. (laughs) That's why she looks like the mailman. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, when did we even have sex? Cause we weren't trying. And then bam, that she wanted to be here. And we, that stress of it, the stress of making the baby had turned off. Hmm. You say he gets sleepy, but maybe you were sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, where did this baby come on? You know, it's so interesting you say that because my husband and I, we had planned on actually not having kids. And so when we did find ourselves pregnant, which of course has turned out to be the best thing ever, we didn't know what we were missing. Um, I think it goes back to the mental aspect of it. Like we were not planning on it. Like we had no sort of expectation, like... We weren't even in that mind mind frame. So do you think that that really plays a big part in it? Just like letting it go and not being stressed about it? Absolutely. Time yeah. and time again, you see people literally give up or something big and stressful comes up in their life that they have to turn all their attention to and boom, they get pregnant. Uh Or they'll go on vacation and just be relaxed and boom, they get pregnant. So it happens much too often for it to be a coincidence. Okay. But because we don't have that much time, I really want to talk about this because I thought I almost lost you recently. Um, It was actually the first time it hit really close to home for me because, you know, you hear about COVID-19 and you hear friends of friends of friends of friends of families have got it and then they're they're okay. And then I saw a message, I think it was on Sarah Wright's Instagram um, that you weren't doing okay. And like my body, like I had like a cold sweat that came over me. I was like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean Dr. Berlin's not doing okay? Um, So you got COVID-19 and you were on in the ICU, um, with oxygen and it was really touch and go. So can you talk us through that process? Like how, when did you know you were in trouble and like, did, yeah, just, just talk us through that. 
Okay. It was really early on. So it was March of mm-hmm. 2020, everybody's favorite year. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, we were supposed to go to Italy in the summer for my daughter's bat mitzvah. And so I was behind the schedule, behind the eight ball scheduling things. And I kept going to the websites to look at w- what itinerary we might have. And then I saw in February, like uh, eight cases of COVID and the next day, 16 cases of COVID. And then the next day, 500 cases of COVID. And mm-hmm. it just went up like huge. And they quickly got overwhelmed. Their medical system got overwhelmed. And I became infatuated with COVID. I was on the CDC website before most people cared about it or were talking about it. And I was looking at their guidelines every day. And, you know, eventually, this is before they were recommending masks, and they were just starting to talk about don't be around other people if you're sneezing and coughing, and maybe mm-hmm. keep six feet away. That, that was about it. Um, and I was sort of thinking to myself, how do I do a massage uh, six feet away from somebody or a chiropractic adjustment or anything like that? So I, I kind of schmoozed it over with my team, and we decided we're going to shut down for a couple of weeks and see what happens as this tidal wave hits. Um, it was a few days later that the governor of California put a shelter-in-place mandate into play, and uh, pretty much the state closed down. Uh, chiropractors are considered essential, so we were allowed to stay open, but we were already closed and committed to staying closed for a while. Uh, two days after that, I felt my first symptom, which for me was completely digestive. I had really upset stomach, nothing mm. else. And at that time, they weren't talking about upset stomach as a symptom of COVID. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that they could be related. So um, I did a telemedicine with my doctor, and they said it's probably stomach flu. Uh, it'll be gone after 48 hours. On the third day, it was the worst ever, and I started to get a fever. So he said, you know what? It's probably a stomach bacteria, not a virus, so I'll give you an antibiotic. Um, and before I could even fill it, by the four fourth day, I started to get the cough. Meanwhile, I was totally isolated, just like the CDC says. We are fortunate to have enough space to do this, but I was in my own room, my own bathroom. I was doing my own laundry. We stocked up on Clorox, and I was wiping down the doorknobs all day, Um, but it was getting worse. And uh, the next day, I got the cough. And once I got the cough, I was like, this sounds like it really could be COVID. And there were other friends of mine who also were having symptoms. So I would call them and I'd say, like, how bad is your cough? How hard is your breathing? How much is your temperature? Mine seemed worse than almost all of theirs. And uh, on the next day, it became so hard to breathe. It was just like there was an elephant on my chest. And I, so day five. Day five. Yeah, I think this was uh, the fifth day. And... Uh, I told my wife, I just said, look, I got to go to the hospital. And I was worried Mm -hmm. because I thought the hospitals were going to be overrun Mm -hmm. and zoo-like and crazy and just waiting in the emergency room for hours. It wasn't like that at all. She brought me to the hospital. They kicked her out right away, no guests. Mm -hmm. And uh, they put me in a chair to do vital signs. And then they brought me right back into the COVID area in the emergency department in a very quick time, they did a full chest x-ray, they did a EKG blood work and a COVID test, and um, they could tell the COVID test at that time was still a two-day COVID test, but they can tell from the chest x-ray, which is instant. There's no more film anymore, just digital. They had like, you have COVID. So they put me on oxygen, which felt nice. They put me into a room. They admitted me. Um, I slept there that night. It's everything seemed okay. The next day they told me we have only one option for you treatment wise. It's a drug called hydroxychloroquine. It's an mm. anti-malaria drug. Um, 
and we have no idea if it works or not, but it's being suggested that it might help. Um, and the biggest possible side effect is it might stop your heart, but we just did an EKG and your heart's pretty strong. So that's probably not going to happen. And I was like, in my alternative and like, there is no alternative. So they said, you got to take it for five days. And I took it. And that night I got rushed to the ICU. My, um, oxygen levels dropped below. Who knows? I don't know. I was getting worse every day still, but uh, that's the only thing I did different. I actually felt better the night before on, on oxygen. And then that night, my oxygen level shot to below 80 and um, it's got to be at least over 90. And um, they couldn't get it up. So they rushed me to the ICU. They did things in the ICU that helped bring it up. There's a different kind of oxygen. It's more of a high pressure, high concentration oxygen. Mm-hmm. That got me up to 94, which they were happy with. Um, I took hydroxychloroquine again the next day, and that night I stopped breathing. I just like oh my god, couldn't breathe, and and I'm conscious but not breathing. I'm just trying to move into different positions to try to breathe, and I hit the panic button. And the nurse is there. It's a glass, you know, all, it's all glass in there, so you could see each other. And she's like, "Hold on, I got to put on my gown and my gloves and my mask and my booties and my face shield." And I'm just panicking, not being able to breathe. Um, she was able to get me breathing again. Um, and then the next day they came in to put me on a ventilator and while they're talking me through the process, she says, you know, um, he seems to be breathing a little bit better today. So that was my third day that I, I took hydroxychloroquine. Um, but it was also the first day that they gave me the cozy shack vanilla pudding. So (laughs) I'm still not convinced which one helped me out of the woods. I still have the cozy shack once a day prophylactically. um, As one should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I avoided the ventilator and every day after that I did get a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And, uh, soon I was out of the ICU and then I got sent home. So did you, did you think you were going to die when you were in the ICU? I, the thought crossed my mind several times, especially that night when I couldn't breathe. I thought I was, I felt myself kind of blacking out and I thought this is either it, like exit stage left or um, wake up having been on a ventilator. The fact that she was able to break that episode was, was nice, but I still mm-hmm. felt like always just seconds away from that happening again. I couldn't sleep at all. Um, luckily, we had Tiger King had just come out, so I just... Uh, <laughs> I remember that. To get you through. <laughs> yeah, well, I binge-watched Tiger King, but it, it, like I would literally feel like I'm half dead. I may or may not make it, but I feel like my life is better than these guys. You know, It was therapeutic. Right. It was very therapeutic. Because it's such a close, near-death experience, um, I... I was on a plane once that was kind of, we landed in a football field in Nova Scotia. And then I was also, um, I narrowly missed that tsunami that killed 250,000 people. And it's, it's weird after like a near death experience like that, like did, what changed for you? Did you, did you live differently or you were happy with what, how your life was going that you just grateful to be alive? Um, Immediately there were some big changes. Um, First of all, I never felt, significant anxiety before Mm -hmm. and then i was like my heart was pounding all the time and eventually i told my wife about it i'm like i think i might have long-term heart stuff from the covid she's like no that's ptsd you idiot go get help um so then they put me on vitamin z uh zoloft which has been amazing Mm -hmm. um and i'm slowly weaning down from it now but it was like i 
I see people who suffer with anxiety and I feel for them, but uh, having experienced it like that firsthand, yeah, it's like I can relate a completely different way. I was like mm-hmm. 46 years later, my Jew finally kicked in uh, full full speed ahead and um, I felt a lot of anxiety. The biggest change I made was that I started to come home for dinner every night at 6.30. Mm. So... Um, I would sometimes, between the work I do in the office and the media I do for informed pregnancy and the birth work that I do at all hours of the night, I oftentimes, you know, leave the house and my whole family is sleeping, come home and they're sleeping again. Um, I went through years of my kids growing up with me not fully being there for them. Um, And so I just decided every night at 6.30, I will be home for dinner. Dinner, And Mm -hmm. I really, I think, haven't missed it even once now, seven months later. Mm. Um, and that's the biggest change. I've, I'm committed to taking better care of my health. Um, that at first, because we had shut the practice and just very slowly opened it back up. At first, that was going really well. I was getting at least eight hours of sleep at night instead of four and a half to five. I was eating better. I was exercising on the treadmill every day. Um, as the office has gotten busier, that's kind of fallen apart a little bit. But mm-hmm. I'm now committed to uh, to going back there. You know, I've already made changes and had had chats with my staff and my family and um i really want to get back i i enjoyed feeling good physically um and i just have to find that balance but i'm committed to finding the balance wow and we're so glad you're here right yes, roxy we we're are. so oh my glad god. you're around like i so yeah at, um oh my god thank god thank god i mean i remember when it came out and people i mean Everybody was so worried about you. You know, it really, it really says something too about you that so many people just really, I hope you felt that, that people cared and like enveloped you like in an embrace because that was really scary. Don't take the good ones. (laughs) (laughs) Not Dr. Berlin. I will say this. I, I literally, that night after I couldn't breathe and she Uh brought me out of that cycle, I turned on my phone and I was just started looking at text messages, mm-hmm. WhatsApp messages, emails. Um, and there were so many and then social media posts. And there were so many from people who I like even just met once or twice or mm-hmm. haven't been in touch with for years. And I'm not a big crier. They made me cry mm-hmm. like a baby and everyone I would open and someone talk about how I, I made their birth better. I made, you know, something, their pregnancy more tolerable and, and just all these different stories from people. I was, uh, and again, it's all glass. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're always looking in at you. I'm like, they must, I don't know what they're thinking, but I cried all night long, just reading message after message. And when I, when I woke up, I didn't really fall asleep, but when I was morning came, I was felt so much lighter and emptier on the inside. Mm -hmm. I felt like a space became created where Mm -hmm. healing could finally take place. And that's when I turned the corner. So I believe a hundred percent in all of that, that that was really a a big part of what helped me get better. And I just had a big milestone on Friday was uh, six months since my first COVID antibody test. So I tested really strongly positive six months ago. My doctor wanted me to retest. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I just tested again. We didn't know if I'd have any antibodies, but they're still raging strong. Are they really? So, wow. Yeah, it was amazing. I, all weekend I've been clubbing and bar hopping. And going to, <laughs> Crowd surfing, know. doing all the things. <laughs> <laughs> Indoor, no mask, political yeah. rallies. Licking people on the face. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm invincible. Yeah. You gotta live. 
Okay, so I know you have to go. We're just going to do a really quick speed. Yes, Travolta. Amazing. Yes. Okay. So, true or false, Dr. Berlin? True. <laughs> true. Dead. I can't help it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Women can't get pregnant naturally after the age of 45. False. Really? Is that true? Really? You can That's get it. Pre- false. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. it gets harder and harder, yeah. but I've seen it happen, so I'm I'm going with false. Okay. Right. Um, sex will never be the same after a vaginal birth. <gasps> For which partner? Um, the I woman. Suppose. Oh. Um, or the man. I mean, <laughs> this, I mean, this brings me to a whole story. Oh, no stories. <laughs> it's a horrible true or false, but it's, it's kind of it a funny a story. This is a speed round. Okay, tell okay. it, tell it. Do you want the story? I mean, if it's good, tell it. Kind of a good story. So, okay. So, yeah. So th- I had a patient on the table and it was my only second time seeing her. And she started asking all me these questions because she found me through the podcast and that's where she was getting all her information. And so she would ask a ton of questions. And then she said something to me that sometimes you get this question and you're like, I shouldn't answer that question because I'm not the best person to answer. And I don't really know. Her question was almost the same. Dr. B, will my vagina ever be the same after I have this baby <laughs> as it is right now? And I should have just said, I don't know. I don't really have one. I, you know, <laughs> ask your friends or I'm not that kind of doctor. But I also felt pressure to answer it. And the first answer that came to mind was definitely not the right answer. So I vetoed that one. Which is, I don't even know what your vagina is like now. So, so uh, I went with the second one that came to mind, which was um, it's sort of built like an elevator. The doors open, somebody comes out, and they close back up again, you know? And mm-hmm. I thought that was a pretty good answer mm-hmm. but then it was like really quiet she was face down on the massage table really really quiet like hashtag awkwardly quiet and i'm like i hope that's not offensive like you brought it up and i i just try to give you the best answer i could and then because i'm a little add i stopped worrying about if she was offended or not and started to justify in my mind all the way that a vagina is just like an elevator um, <laughs> You know, like, for example, I don't, not everybody's like this, but I always get uncomfortable if there's somebody else in the elevator with me. You never know what to say to them. You know, yeah. I would say, maybe I would say, would you mind hitting G? I sometimes have a hard time finding that, <laughs> that button. I don't know. Anyway, just all like people are afraid of getting stuck in an elevator and mm-hmm. other yeah. things like that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. if you're ever just like pushing the button, pushing the button, when's this thing going to come already? I, I, <laughs> going down. So I, um, oh my anyway, God. the point is what happened was she fell asleep. <laughs> yeah. So you don't, well, you know what? I, I've heard that some go back, some don't. So it's yeah. really, you really don't know. You don't know. You know Maybe you get the extra stitch or not. To go, yeah, everything's the same. And friends yeah. go, oh my God, everything is not the same. Okay. So in terms of true or false, I will say I have a patient who got full four degree tear fourth degree tear um i mean front to back and uh she swears that she's back to normal after the repairs that she did get the extra stitch or two or three um okay (laughs) true or false a drink a day is harmful to your unborn baby i see you mean alcoholic drink yes yeah 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 i mean it's sort of semi-true it depends what's in there okay i i I think it sounds like too much we all we know is that yeah, what, a week or a day or every two days or every three days? Like- depends what the drink is and depends how often it is. The official okay. line is that no amount of alcohol is known to be safe for the fetus during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But uh, with that said, most 
medical practitioners, I know obstetricians and midwives do allow, um, you know, a little bit of red wine, for example, uh, periodically, like half a glass, a couple of times a week. So I didn't risk it. I was just like, you know what I can do? Like, let's just not risk it. I just found a new company, a new company, Sapiens. They make, uh, they make wine that's uh-huh. non-alcoholic. Go figure. Oh, it's just like, that's just like, it's not grape juice. It's, it's processed like, like wine uh-huh. and then they have the alcohol removed. And then you have the alcohol. Mm, it's kind of, kind of misses the point for me. <laughs> You're like, I want that buzz. <laughs> um, we'll do two more. And then let you okay. go. Babies look like their dads for the first few years. So the dads don't disown the mom. And that is from caveman times. I think so. It's that the dads don't eat the babies. Oh, right. It's oh. reason something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, cavemen and other animals, I think, are more likely to eat the babies than dads. Today. <laughs> but I, I think that's true. They come out looking more like dad and uh, dad accepts them, you know. Mm-hmm. And then they change a lot over the first year. None of this applies to me because I'm face blind. But oh, uh, that's right. You yeah, don't have so facial I'm, recognition. I wouldn't have. So does that mean either. you don't know? Like, do you when you saw me or Roxy, if you've seen us before, you didn't know what we looked like? So it's nope. just like a pleasant surprise. Always, always, <laughs> first time, every time. I can't save a face in my mind. So it's the same with my wife, my kids, my mother, um, even my own face. I can't pick me out of a picture. Interesting. Oh, my gosh. Okay, Rock's last one, okay. and then we'll let you go. This one is, um, I, I don't know, Tamman, if you've had this, but I definitely have. Okay, melasma is caused by pregnancy hormones, and they will it will never go away. Definitely have that. Yeah, I, don't right. think, I think it can go away. It can go away. It can go away. How does it go away? Sometimes it goes away, sometimes it doesn't. But then I also heard from skincare experts that if it doesn't go away, you can treat it. Yeah, I think peels, like um, a light peel or like a micro needling. We'll ask Dr. Diamond. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that makes it go away. <laughs> well, Dr. Berlin, we're so happy you came on. We're so, so happy great. that you're alive yes. and giving us shit. <laughs> and telling your jokes about the elevator vagina. Oh. What an amazing Sunday over here in Hot Springs among <laughs> Whoa, enjoy. It really is a great start to the day. Okay, Dr. Berlin, tell everybody where they can find you. Oh, I am on Instagram at Dr. Berlin, D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N, Dr. Berlin. And your podcast? Our podcast, everything's there. So our Mm -hmm. podcast is called The Informed Pregnancy Podcast. Our YouTube series is called The Real Midwives of Los Angeles. (laughs) And uh, the workshop that my wife put together is called The Afterbirth Plan. But it's all on Instagram at Dr. Berlin. And you can always go in and see him if you're in Los Angeles, too. You can yeah, make an appointment. Yeah, come on in. Yes. I say, I'm mostly appropriate in the office. I save that stuff for my stand-up comedy show. Just <laughs> <FYI>. <laughs> yeah. Um, and rate. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, yes. and comment. And we are Women on Top Official on Instagram. And Women on Top Podcast on Facebook. And I am Taman Sursak. And I am Roxy Manning. And we are Women, women. on 